This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan. Mahi Ramakrishnan is the founder of Beyond Borders, an NGO aimed at promoting and protecting the rights of refugees and stateless persons. She's also a journalist and an award-winning filmmaker. Welcome to the show, Mahi. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really good as well. I'm very excited to talk to you about your personal journey and activism. Um, but before that, perhaps you can tell us a bit more about Beyond the uh, Beyond Borders. What exactly is it? And also, what work do you do with the organization? Okay, so Beyond Borders Malaysia does a, a few things. Uh, for example, we have a livelihood initiative called Briani Wallace, where we encourage migrant as well as refugee women. And we have also expanded it to include B40 Malaysian women to cook biryani and we sell it and we you know, give them the profits. When I initially started, I had put in some of my savings, which means that they took 60% of the profits and 40% went back into the company. But now that I managed to recoup the, the little bit of money that I had put in, uh, 100% of the profits go to these women. So that's one thing that we do. The other thing that we do in Beyond Borders Malaysia is is to run an annual four-day refugee festival, which looks at promoting the uh, the artistic talents of refugees in Malaysia. Now, why do we do this? We do it because we want to showcase their talent and use that as a platform to connect them with the Malaysian society so that we can put refugees and Malaysians in the same space and so that they can listen to them, talk to them, have conversations, get to know them better. Um, last year, we couldn't do it because we are restructuring it because I realized that I would like the Refugee Festival to have a bigger reach. And that means that we need to take it out of publica and take it to the people, which means the new idea is to actually look at refugee festivals in a PPR flat area, for example, or in a Yapi area in Bangsa, or in a Chinese uh, new village, or in an Indian settlement, so that we can actually connect people uh, at the ground level. I think this is important, given the fact that we have seen uh, a rise in uh, xenophobia over, I mean, maybe from 2020. So uh, these are some of the things we do. And besides that, I also work on um, lobbying uh, Malaysian parliamentarians to look at progressive uh, policies in terms of right to work, education, and healthcare for the refugees. And in my own capacity, I also do research because I'm attached to APA, which is the Asia Pacific Atrocity Prevention Network. And I do research on hate crimes and atrocity crimes, and also look at the issues of uh, women, peace and security, and how to position women. And now essentially looking at women survivors of the conflict in Myanmar to look at how we can position them as a Uh, issue concerning women, peace and security so that it stays in mainstream conversations. So these are some of the issues that I do. Sorry if it's a bit long-winded. Not at all, Mahi. I mean, these are fantastic work that you're doing. But I'm curious, you know, why did you decide to start this initiative? When and and what was the light bulb moment that made you go, okay, now this is something I have to do? I think about 17 years ago when I was working as a correspondent for Press TV out of Iran, I was commissioned to actually do a couple of uh, news reports on the uh, Rohingya who were fleeing into Malaysia. So I started doing two and a half, three minute news reports on them. And I realized, oh, my God, there is a lot more to this story. Right. So I got more involved and then I expanded it to 
a film, a documentary, and then it became a series of documentaries. And I think I kind of realized that there is much more that I could do. So I started something that a journalist should never do, or that's what you're told never to do. Like you, you, you have this, uh, you know, this distance between you and the person that you right. are interviewing or you and the story, right? That's mm -hmm. how it goes. But it was never possible when I was working with the, with the Rohingya refugees. That's how I started uh, look, looking at forced migration by working at the Rohingya refugees first. So I used to stop and I used to bring in aid, like a mobile clinic, for example, or talk to friends so that they can set up a school of some kind, for example, and also bringing in aid and food and whatever else that they actually needed. So I thought, huh, there is a lot more that I can do because at that point in time, I thought that I did have the platform and uh, pr privilege, for lack of another word, of actually voicing their grievances as well as their aspirations. And as you know, we are all a work in progress, which means that while I started doing that, I realized that, oh, why should I be the one who is talking about uh, about the refugees or what they are going through? Because lived experience is something else. Right. Why shouldn't I create a platform for refugees to speak up for themselves? Because I do believe in community-led engagement. I do believe in refugee-led discourses. So that's how, you know, the thought of actually putting it together into a framework came about so that I can consolidate some of the work that I was doing, whether it was making a film or a news report or bringing in aid or actually creating platforms for them to speak up. That's how Beyond Borders Malaysia came about. And, you know, um, I am actually... Glad I started it. It's been a challenge, but it's also been a, a fantastic journey so far. Talk to me a little bit more about the evolution of your journey in activism and nation building. Because as you rightfully pointed out, um, you're also a journalist and, and also an award-winning filmmaker. It seems like your journey in this um, field, so to speak, in the field of activism started um, with you becoming a journalist. So um, what made you want to be a journalist and how did it, your career evolve um, from there? You know, I started off with the Sun newspaper and mm -hmm. this is how my career actually got started off. It was quite hilarious. <laughs> I did my first report because I was told to, you know, to go to University of Malaya and uh, cover this uh, conference that was happening. So I did. I went there. I looked at the seven or eight speakers and I was completely confused because I didn't know what to write. My very first assignment. Okay. <laughs> so I went back to the office and then I wrote something and I waited and waited and waited. And finally, the editor calls me uh, to go see him. So I was like, okay, you know, at least I can get this over and done with. I can go back home. And then I go there and the guy actually looks at me and uh, prints out a copy of what I had written. He looks at me again. He crumples the piece into a tight ball. He looks at me and he tosses it with so much force and anger into the dustbin that I asked myself, like, I was like, Mahi, do you really need this? Do you really want to be a journalist? And then I said, ah, I'm going to take this as a challenge and I'm going to try and do something better. So instead of just doing stories about the prime minister said this or the minister said that and attending, you know, ribbon cutting ceremonies, I thought I wanted to dig deeper into stories. That's right. how this... Um, this desire to do investigative journalism came about. And I must say that I'm eternally grateful uh, to Time magazine. I worked with them for about seven and a half, eight years, and they gave me the platform, the space, and the logistics and resources that a journalist needs to actually be able to cultivate this skill of investigative journalism. Let me give you an example. I used to go into southern Thailand 
and just like, you know, talk to all my sources there and come back with absolutely no stories. Now, I would have spent a few hundred US dollars doing that. But my bosses who sat in Hong Kong understood that I was actually laying the foundation so that when something actually happens, we get a scoop, we get to do an expose, we get to do an exclusive story. Right. So that is how this whole career evolved. And I didn't know that I was actually setting myself up to doing, you know, films that looked at, uh, you know, invest uh, uh, films which had an investigative nature to it. Like, for example, all the films that I had done on forced migration, whether it was looking at why the Rohingya were fleeing, what happened to them, or also looking at the, you know, uh, the sales and the trafficking of Rohingya child brides into Malaysia to be sold off as wives to Rohingya men, or even looking at the child sex trade in Malaysia, for example. You know, all of that was made possible. And the perseverance, I must say, was made possible because of the work that I had done on the ground as an investigative journalist. It was incredibly tough. Let me tell you another story. I actually went into the Yala army camp. Right. Uh, I can't remember which year when I was working for Time magazine. I bought a Smith and Wessons because I went with the arm smuggler, and the arm smuggler said something like, "Oh, this is my friend. Her husband is having an affair, and she wants to buy a gun because I'm not sure whether I wanted to shoot the husband or the mistress." But you know, it was something like that. Right. And I went and bought a gun, and then I wrote about how the Thai army was actually selling weapons to militants in Southeast Asia. Now, um, I think I was about 27 or 28 years old, so I was like way less scared and much more <laughs> reckless. <laughs> I'm 54 years old this year, and so I must say that, you know, I find these things a little bit daunting. I tell myself, my God, how did you even do that, right? But I do remember as the the gate to the Yala army camp opened and, you know, we were driving in in the, milita- in, in the military jeep, you know, uh, Din, who was the guy who took me in, he put his hands on my thighs and I was like, oh my God, what is he doing? And then I realized that my thighs, my legs were shaking so badly. He was trying oh, to wow. tell me, calm down, you know, <laughs> don't, wow. don't, you know, don't end up getting both of us killed because, you know, we have a story that we have prepared and we need to keep to that story, which means you need to act natural. So I think, you know, from an investigative uh, journalist, I became an investigative filmmaker and I realized that forced migration is a big thing. So I started uh, doing more work with the refugees. I, I realized that there's so much um you know, loop and gaps when it comes to protection mechanisms, for example, how great it looked on on papers. And then I said, okay, you know, last year I decided if I really want to go in and talk about forced migration with that much expertise, then I need to study about it. So I started a course looking at uh, a master's in refugee protection and forced migration studies in University of London. And uh, it, uh, I think I, I complete this year. So that's why I was telling you that's I'm fantastic. rushing 4,000-word yep. essays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's wonderful. Now, uh, you know, Mahi, I'm wondering, right? In, in 2017, you made a film called Bo, or Bride, um, which yeah. won nine international awards. Tell me a little bit more about this film. and Because I watched it and it's absolutely riveting. It is heartbreaking. It's just a really good film that everybody should watch. But tell me, um, you know, what inspired you to make this film and, and what were you trying to highlight? Firstly, uh, Darshan, thank you for thank you very much for watching it mm-hmm. because you know as a filmmaker it it means a lot when people actually watch that because that's what you do you yes you get funded and then you make the film and then you want the film to be watched by as many people as possible. Right. This journey actually started way back when I went into uh, when I went to Myanmar to actually look at 
creating a film that that was something like an idiot's guide to what was actually happening, you know, the socio-economic political problem mm-hmm. in Myanmar. And when I was doing that, I stumbled upon the fact that, you know, there were already uh, camps within uh, Sitwe and uh, people were actually trying to escape those camps. So I met with a trafficker there and I decided, okay, why not I do a film on uh, that looks at the whole transit and the kind of sexual, emotional, mental abuse that the Rohingya undergo and how they really have no choice but to put their hands uh, but to put their lives in the hands of agents and traffickers to make that perilous sea journey to Malaysia now while I was doing in while I was investigating for that film I realized that there was another component to it where agents were actually trafficking um, young Rohingya girls to be sold off as child brides to Malaysia and to the Rohingya men in Malaysia. So I thought, okay, I'm going to work on this because I do quite a bit of work on trafficking issues. But what really shocked me was the fact that during the research, I found out that the Rohingya men were themselves making deals with the traffickers, saying things like, we want you to bring a girl who is like 13 or 14 years old from our village in Mongdo, for example. And, you know, let's negotiate on the payment. Let's negotiate on payment terms. Can we make a monthly payment over a few months? So that was kind of shocking because the girls who are actually brought in, they undergo lots of mental, emotional, and essentially sexual trauma. Like, you know, I'm sure you remember that one of the girls will actually tell you about how she was raped by more than 60 traffickers. And then she goes on to say that some of the traffickers were nice to her because they were God-fearing and they did not touch her or sexually violate her. It kind of broke my heart repeatedly just making the film and sitting through the edit And, uh, you know, it made me think that it is just so unfortunate that just because someone is born in a different geographical location, that child cannot have a normal childhood. Now, it's all well and dandy that the film is watched and it won awards. But how do I feel as a filmmaker? I feel terrible because Mm -hmm. from 2017, I think it was done in 2017. And for three years after that, I refused to make a film because I thought that I had put these girls that they were naked, even though they were wearing a niqab. But, you know, I had put them naked to the entire world because they were telling you these stories and horrific details that most people will not want someone else to know, right? That I had done that to them. And what happened? Nothing actually happened in terms of progression. Nothing actually happened in terms of putting special protection mechanisms for them. I couldn't even get key stakeholders, I do not want to mention names, to actually look into their well-being, to look at giving them uh, counseling and therapy, teaching them the Malay language, because the only thing they said was they already had children and that their lives are ruined, but they want to learn the language, they want to learn the skill so that they are able to be financially independent to take care of their kids. I could not put that in place for them. So sometimes... People tell me, yes, it's important for you to make the film. It's important for you to create awareness. All that is justified. But as a filmmaker, sometimes I find it very difficult to justify it to myself and to go to bed thinking that I had done the right thing. Right. So how do you go to bed, Mahi, at night? Because, <laughs> you know, you're someone who, you know, has you have been doing this um, in, in the form of investigative journalism, um, documentary filmmaking, and now even, you know, you have your own NGO. So you have been doing this, um, covering issues of the marginalised, working hand-in-hand hand with the marginalised, especially the stateless people, um, refugees, for many, many, many years. 
um, decades even, you are dealing with these things in a very, you know, it, it's right in front of you. And you're talking to, to, to the victims, to the survivors. Um, you know, you are seeing what happens on the ground where many of us may be completely, you know, you know, it may be completely out of our radar or we are just perhaps reading it on headlines and, and things like that. Whereas you are in the thick of it. Um, it has to take some sort of mental toll on you, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, how do you essentially go to sleep at night, um, you know, with the weight of the world on your shoulders? You know, it's actually very difficult, but mm-hmm. I want to be honest here. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, PTSD and uh, chronic depression mm-hmm. on top of bipolar type 2. It's how do you um, listen to a child who is like uh, 12, 12 and a half, 13 years old, tell you that she was raped by most than 60 traffickers. Yes, you can stop filming there and there and sit with her because she's crying and your heart is completely shattered into pieces. But how do you go on? Mm-hmm. Um, it's also difficult because I did not really go out there and get a debriefing session, even though there are many Malaysian CSOs that make that possible and available and accessible for filmmakers and journalists, as well as um, activists, to be honest. But I did not actually seek that kind of help until much later. So it was incredibly difficult. And I want to talk about it because I want to normalize it. I want people who are listening to this program to know that it is okay and that, you know, there are many, many more people like you, such as myself, who also feel the same way that PTSD or, uh, you know, depression and the mood swings that come with it, you know, the suicidal thoughts sometimes that come with it, you know, is nothing to be ashamed of that all of us need help. But what is really crucial is for us to actually seek the help because that was the help that I needed to get access to so that I can make sense or, you know, yeah, make sense of what was actually happening to me. Like, for example, I could... uh be driving and I could watch someone who is really old and frail cross the road and I can burst out crying. Um, I can have a conversation, a a simple conversation and, uh, you know, burst out crying. I can go and meet my best friend and have coffee because, you know, I'm dying to see her and I'm so happy to be sitting in front of her for all of that to change within five minutes for me to ask myself, what on earth am I doing here? Why am I here? I just want to leave and I want to just go home and I just want to go to sleep and I don't want to get out of my bed. So these are some of the issues that I think not just me, uh, but others have. But again, you know, I'm speaking from a position of privilege because, like I said, I was able to access um, counseling and therapy. I have friends. I have a partner who literally worships the ground that I walk on. And without him and his support, uh, doing this work would have been incredibly difficult. I have a very, very, very uh, supportive father as well as two children and a group of friends, like I said. So, But then I, I, I sit, the, sit down and ask myself, what about the refugees? What about the migrant workers and the stateless persons who do not have that kind of network or that kind of uh, support accessible to them or the therapy and counseling sessions accessible to them? But again, you know, what actually makes me go on is the fact that I look at them and I learn so much from them. A lot of people say that... Um, that I've helped the refugees. Yes, I have shared whatever little that I know, but they have helped me tremendously. They have shown me about priorities. They have shown me to hold on to courage. They have shown me to believe that tomorrow will be a better day. They have shared their homes and their food and their intimate stories. So what more could I ask? I use all of that uh, as a way of, or I leverage on all of that as a way of, uh, you know, telling myself that with a little bit of therapy, I can get stronger 
that yes, I will actually have bad days, but things will get better. And if they can do it, I can. And because I'm in a better position, I'm in a more privileged position, then I will use whatever I can to to kind of offer that kind of protection mechanism for them as well. On the show with me today is Mahi Ramakrishnan, founder of Beyond Borders Malaysia. After the break, we continue talking about her journey in activism only on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things. I'm Dashran Johan. And on the show with me today is Mahi Ramakrishnan. She's the founder of Beyond Borders Malaysia. So, Mahi, do you believe that better days are ahead? And and I'm asking this because as an activist, um, you know, on top of what you've you know, told me, you know, as an activist in general, you're faced, you're facing more defeats than victories. A lot of the times, at least it seems that way, um, you're talking about going up against, um, you know, the local authorities, you're talking about um, going up against the local establishment. But more than that, when you talk about the refugee crisis, you're talking about global issues, imperialism, um, you know, how certain countries are bombing certain countries which are causing the refugee crisis and things like that. These are so big issues, right? Um, and and then you are faced with a lot of defeats constantly, uh, people telling you that nothing can be done. And, you know, even when you push for certain policy changes, um, the big picture, you still see refugees around you. Um, people are still suffering. Um, you know, refugees are coming to Malaysia, going to a lot of other countries, what gives you hope? What gives me hope is the fact that, you know, I am putting in place certain platforms and I know that once I'm no more here, once I'm gone, that young people will take over. What mm. gives me hope is the fact that I speak to so many students, university students and college students and young people who tell me that they want to take on this job and do it. So I know that beyond me, the work will continue. And you're right. You know, look at the global picture. Look at the bombings and the imperialism, like you pointed out. Look at what's happening in Afghanistan. Look at look at what's happening in Myanmar, you know, right at our backyard. And the fact that, yes, we have international community com- uh, no, talking about it and condemning it, but then we don't really see any real intervention on the ground. So is this going to end? Is forced migration going to end anytime soon? I don't think so. But then if I'm going to be stuck with the bigger picture, then I'm going to get really scared to a point that I will be so frozen that I will not be able to do my job. So this is what I do. I look at the smaller picture. I look at what I can do. I look at the support mechanism that I have around me and I do what I possibly can. But then to answer your question, I am terribly disappointed at this point in time Mm -hmm. because, you know, we have a new government, uh, a reformist government for lack of another word. But then I see what has been happening with the Home Minister, for example. There was this small video or short video that came out of the Kimani's Immigration Detention Center. And instead of actually going and doing a spot check, the minister completely aligned himself with the immigration and sang praises about them. And then you also have the immigration, which does not let up when it comes to immigration rates and, uh, you know, hauling people up. And you have the human resources minister who has said that, you know, work rights for the refugees is something that's off the charts for now. So you feel like, oh, my God, you work so hard. And then you see so many government changes and you need to start all over again. But then when you see... Uh, 
Anwar Ibrahim-led government that talks about Malaysia Madani, then you think that, okay, he is going to talk about the inclusion of everyone who actually makes up the Malaysian society because inclusion is something that he is talking about, you know, as a core value of Madani. But then you realize, oh my God, he's only talking about Malaysians. And you will think that coming out of the um, COVID pandemic, you would realize that, you know, by now we should know that othering is not a right concept that for the other person to be fine, I need to be fine. And for me to be fine, the other person needs to be fine. We need to look at inclusive, comprehensive healthcare policies and other policies as well. But it's very disappointing. If this comes from an UMNO-led government, I'll be able to say, okay, they are like that and this is how it's going to be. I do understand that, you know, this is a I don't think it's a unity government, because if it's a unity government, we need to have Purikata National in it, but we don't. But right. it's a coalition government, and mm-hmm. I do understand that the prime minister's hands are tied. But I would still like to see progress when it comes to refugees and migrant workers. And that is not happening. So at this point in time, I'm really disappointed. But does that mean that we are going to sit down and do nothing about it? Of course not. You know, we we keep knocking on the door. So we have asked to see the... Home Minister, we have asked to see the Human Resources Minister, and we have also asked to see the the Prime Minister. I'm talking about a group of uh, NGOs, Asylum right. Access, Tanaganita, Sahabad Wanita, North South Initiative, uh, Refugee uh, Emergency Fund, Human Aid Slango, as well as Beyond Borders. So we hope that we are able to, at the very least, have communication channels open between these different ministers and ourselves, because I think that you know it is important for us not to dismiss anything or anyone, but to be able to keep engaging. Because at the end of the day, you and I can do only so much. Without political will, we are not going to see real change, progression or intervention on the ground. Absolutely. Now, I want to get back to what you brought up about how, you know, the othering of of the refugees a little bit later. But I want to talk to you about, you know, what you brought up, which is the support system for yourself as well. Um, Mahi, I want to rewind the clock to your childhood. Tell me a little bit more about your family and your childhood. Um, when you were growing up, did your parents or, or other family members discuss, let's say, social justice and human rights and, and politics? Were these regular conversations at, at the dinner table? Because I'm wondering, what is it that propelled you? What is it that propelled your interest in, in human rights, in, in journalism, which started, you know, you, know your, your, you started your career as a journalist? Um, what is it that propelled these interests? You know, actually, it really doesn't have to be bombastic or profound Mm. conversations about human rights and politics and whatever. What I distinctly remember is this. My mom, you know, uh, we grew up privileged. So my mom had um, a few domestic workers to to work in the house. And I remember this. At that point in time when I was a kid, I don't think you had such a thing as heater or whatever. And that was the time when you actually had to boil your water, your hot right. water. And I remember, <laughs> you know, maybe not you, because, you know, I'm 54, <laughs> I remember the age gap. So uh, the thing is, I still remember that I told my mother, Amma, I want to go and take a, right. I want to go and bathe now. And she was like, no, because Akka, referring to the domestic worker, she said, Akka said that she needs to bathe first. And I've already said, okay, so you know what? You need to wait your turn. Mm. And that kind of knocked sense into me and kept my head firmly on my shoulders. And I remember that every weekend, my dad will actually go and give uh, food for tea 
to uh, these uh, differently abled um, homes and other places like orphanages as well as old folks home. And uh, instead of buying it and sending it, my mother will actually make it and I will sit with them. Me and my younger sister will actually sit with them and help them to pack it. And while we are packing it, my father will talk about the less privileged and how things are so much easier for us as a way of also knocking some sense into our heads. So I think all of this kind of made me not just understand my privilege, but it, it also made me understand that I could do something for those who are less privileged than me. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. I was just walking down in my hometown and uh, I come from Batugaja, right. you know, a small little town. And uh, I was walking down the street and this, uh, this, this old lady, she came to me and she said in Tamil, she said, you know, oh, I wish you well. And, you know, you should, you live a long life and I wish you prosperity. And she was going on blessing me. And I was looking at her and I said, uh, I said, party, which in Tamil means grandmother. I said, party, this is mistaken identity. I think you've gotten the wrong person. <laughs> you don't even know me. I certainly don't know you. This <laughs> this happened just about, I think about 15 years ago. Right. And she said, no, 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 you're Ramakrishnan's daughter, right? I said, yes. And she said, oh, don't you know that a group of, you know, like a fleet of 10 homes, like a row of 10 houses were actually burned down and your dad came and gave us like money and uh, and groceries and uh, sarongs and everything. And I was like, oh, no wonder he brought like two pieces of sarong back for my mother two right. days ago, I was thinking. And then I realized that my, that my father throughout his years, uh, until today, does a lot of charity without so much of a peep. Mm. So we don't see things like, you know, this uh, bag of rice is from this particular politician <laughs> and I'm giving it to you because With your you face are a on <laughs> yes, I, I see your face in it. And, you know, we don't, I, don't, I didn't grow up like this. So I think a lot of those values were inculcated by my parents without them actually talking so much about human rights. Because, you know, I know this because I have children and they are, you know, they can be incredibly nice kids and they can be, oh, my good Lord. So <laughs> but I do realize having my own children mm -hmm. that I can sit down and preach to them. But right. nothing goes into their heads. <laughs> what they actually look at is what you are doing. They are constantly watching you and observing you. So I think I grew up watching and observing my parents. And until today, I hold this that my father said to me. I hold it so close to my heart. He said, when you give something or when you do something to someone, make sure that the person who is receiving does not feel humiliated or small. And... Be really grateful to the person for having given you that opportunity for you to give. I, to me, this is my, my Bhagavad Gita. Absolutely. I hold on to this because, you know, I see politicians who give and then there are photos of them handing over things. And my heart breaks because I tell myself if I'm in that position, how humiliated I will feel. So, you know. I'm sure I'm, I'm only human. I make mistakes. and I'm sure I've made lots of mistakes and I take this opportunity to apologize for it. But as much as possible, I remember this and I make sure that when we are, you know, delivering aid or when we are creating platforms, I do it with so much reverence because I know that it is a privilege to be given the opportunity to do it in the first place. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Now, you know, you've been doing this like we've, said for many, many years, what has been your proudest moment so far, either in, in journalism or, you know, in, in activism? 
I think uh, one of the recent proudest moment is to see Hassan Alakra, the Syrian community right. leader. Yes, I've interviewed him before. Yes, I, I, he calls me Mama, so oh. he's my child, and to see him graduate and uh, you know his bachelor's in education and uh, to see him graduate together with my daughter she did her masters in uh, international relations they both graduated from nottingham university at the same time i couldn't be there because you know i i had covid my dad had covid and we had just recovered and it wasn't possible for me to travel so i was watching it over the laptop and when i saw hassan come on I was crying so much and I wanted to hold this baby of mine because I was just bursting with pride, right? And likewise, he realized that, oh my God, you know, with nothing, having come here, absolutely losing everything, this kid has done so much good for himself and to people around him, if only I can be one-tenth of him. Secondly, you know, a few years ago, I did speak to you earlier about the Refugee Festival. In one of the festivals, we actually uh, published a book, a zine by this uh, Afghan poet, Masuma Tawakoli. She's an, a poet as well as an illustrator. And she came to me with bits and pieces of illustrations in an A4 paper showing me that, you know, she had all these drawings about her life under the Taliban and she wanted help putting it together. I said, let me ask for for funds and you know you just go ahead and do what you have to do so she did the illustrations i wrote to the illustrations the canadian high commissioner was uh, kind enough to give us the money to publish it to get it printed and we published it and to see her on stage at the refugee festival you know giving this book as a token of appreciation to the acting high commissioner and to sit at a panel and talk about her life and be that woman that you can look up to oh my god i can cry even talking about it now it was it was so heartwarming i tell you i don't even know how to describe it because afghan women essentially are dismissed as those who have got no voice you know they've got they right. don't even know their rights they just sit in the kitchen but masuma showed everyone that you know that is inaccurate that that is wrong that's a that's a false way or an inaccurate way of looking at afghan women that if given platforms and opportunities anyone can shine you know and put themselves out there they just need a little bit of support and i really hope that you know we can continue doing that for them now you know one of the things when i talk to you know a lot of uh, people activists people who run ngos is that ngos need help from the the public um it's not easy running running uh, an ngo especially when it comes to funding and, and so on and so forth so if for people listening um how can people support your ngo beyond borders either financially or otherwise you know um I, I wish that, uh, you know, I mean, you are right, you know, the most important thing for any NGO is funding because without funding, it's difficult for us to run programs mm. and also to hire staff so that we can look at and diversify the issues that we are looking at. Um, but having said that, I think what is really important for us now or for me now is for the Malaysian public to actually understand and get to know and be friends with refugees because there's been lots of xenophobia there's lots of racism we have become a hugely xenophobic and racist country over the last few years it's so sad for me to say this but that's the truth and we saw the adverse effects of it in 2020 at the height of the pandemic right we saw the kind of animosity and hatred and backlash against the rohingya community that then snowballed into other communities and also migrant workers i think the only thing or one of the things that people who are watching this or listening to this can actually do is to 
get to know a refugee, sit with a refugee, have coffee with a refugee, understand that they are just like you and me with the same hopes and aspirations for themselves and their children. And, you know, they have no choice but to leave their homes and flee because none of us, even if from Kuala Lumpur, you're just going to Bangsa in your home, you know, from your home, you're going to Bangsa because you want to go for a party or whatever, or meet a friend, you will actually make sure that your house is properly locked and you'll make sure that, you know, you'll make sure two or three times that it's properly locked. But imagine these people who have to leave everything and just run who have lost livelihoods who have lost family and friends who have lost their parents who have seen their children being thrown into the fire by the military junta the burmese military junta it is horrific it's beyond horrific i understand that one of the reasons we shy away as malaysians is because we can't comprehend that kind of uh, persecution or targeted persecution or violence because we have not experienced it but you know there is enough narrative out there to show the kind of persecution that they have experienced and they are here they are here in cha- in search of a new home all i ask is for malaysia it's for malaysians and those who make up the Malaysian society and for those who are listening into this program to embrace them, you know, to listen to them, to sit down, have coffee with them and understand that they are just as human as you and me, because, you know, we need to look at conflict resolution for lack of another word on the ground level. So, you know, if we cannot embrace them, if we cannot become friends with them, then any policy that looks at enabling them to work or, you know, access to education and affordable health care will fail miserably because they have to live amongst this. And, you know, if it is such a hostile environment, it's not going to help us go anywhere. And speaking of that hostile environment, one last question, Mahi. What would you tell people who, you know, people like you rightfully brought up, you know, there's a lot of xenophobia and generally it, it, people see refugees and migrants and, and stateless people as the other Right, they assume that they are here to they are criminals. They are they are you know here to steal from us. They are here to steal our jobs. They are here to ruin our cultures, and they are here to you know mess up the place. And these are the kinds of narratives you hear all the time. Um, and and you also hear things like um you know. Um, if you love a refugee so much, why don't you take them and keep them in your house? That's the yeah. you know late thing that people seem to say all the time these days. What would you tell people who say these things? You know, I will just say that it's, you know, the thing is, like when I started Refugee Festival, it was because I was getting really angry with the kind of narrative and mainstream discussions that were that was happening amongst the Malaysian public. But then I told myself, I, I can either get angry or I can do something about it. And that's how the Refugee Festival came about, because, you know, that's the only way you're going to connect these two communities. So I won't really completely... Um, blame the Malaysian the Malaysian society for thinking that way when you have had a play of religion on politics in Malaysia right. for like forever, you know, Absolutely. under UMNO, for example, right. right? And then you also have the minority communities who have been treated like second-class citizens. So when they get uh, little to nothing, they will feel fear when right. they feel, when they think that, you know, there is, there are this, this group of people and, you know, these different groups of people. And uh, what if I lose that little bit that is mine? Right. So I will not dismiss those fears. The only way in which we can mitigate those fears 
is to connect these two groups so that they can talk to each other and realize that it is discriminatory policies that are taking away jobs and livelihoods and opportunities and access to you equal access to education you know and not the fact that you have marginalized communities who have come into malaysia looking for either job prospects or for a new home because just like crossing borders looking for new opportunities isn't a crime seeking asylum isn't a crime either but if you look at the way we treat migrant workers who do not have documents irrespective of the fact that they have documents we actually treat them like criminals instead of looking at it as as an administrative offense we look at look at it as a criminal offense so i think without the interference from the malaysian government none of this will stop unfortunately even during the last election we saw how amno was capitalizing on the refugee and migrant narrative creating fear and making it seem to malaysians as if though these people don't matter and their priority is towards malaysians this is just to score brownie points many years ago the former prime minister najib razak used the rohingya to score brownie points for himself right. when you know the the when one mdb was just too hot a news and he wanted to steer clear of it he wanted to shift you know the focus so he talked about the refugees and the rohingya and myanmar and the targeted persecution i think this is appalling and shameful so if there's one thing i can say or one thing i can leave behind as a way of ending this interview i would really like to appeal to the government i would like to appeal to the prime minister anwar ibrahim you know who has gone through the mill you know before he actually right. got this top job right we all know mm-hmm. that and i hope that he will be able to be to he, i hope he will be able to look at the refugee migration migrant worker issue with a lot of sympathy and empathy and also understand that they make up the malaysian society and look into expanding benefits and um you know protection mechanisms to also include them and i hope that the home minister and the human resources minister will be able to look at issues of forced migration with a little bit more progression like it we need to look at progressive policies and i hope that uh, the anwar led government will actually look at progressive uh, policies when it comes to migrant workers as well as refugees thank you so much for joining me today mahi Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was Mahi Ramakrishnan. She's the founder of Beyond Borders Malaysia. If you miss any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Good Things BFM eighty nine point nine. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM eighty nine point nine, the Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.